there's nothing more noble than feeding somebody. I mean, if I met some guy on the side of the road and I, you know, he's hungry or whatever, and I brought him home and fed him, you know, I did him a bigger solid than giving him five bucks. You know, I mean, that's going to last a little longer than five. So for me to be able to say that I feed 65,000 people, and it's something that I, it's so important to us that, you know, every employee that we have knows it. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Feedlots. It's kind of a dirty word right now, at least in some people's minds, as far as the way to produce beef. But what is the truth on feedlots? Are they bad for animals? Are they bad for the environment? I wanted to talk with someone who actually ran a feedlot here in Washington to find out what they're all about and what they do and to ask some hard questions. I connected with Camus Ubalocker uh, with CNG Cattle Company over in Othello and we had an incredible conversation. His answers to some of my hard questions were not at all what I expected. And we ended up talking about climate change and the environment and taking care of animals and all of these things that you would not expect with the stereotype that feedlots have. So I encourage you to listen to this conversation with an open mind. I know he changed my perspective on quite a few things. Again, his name is Camus Ubalocker. He's our guest this week and next. I had to split this in two parts. We had such a good conversation. It just kept going and there was a lot to share. So this is the first part of our conversation about how beef is produced here in Washington and in a lot of parts of the United States. But as you'll hear him say, he thinks we have something special with how we do it here in Washington. And you'll find out that he cares deeply about these issues that people are worried about with feedlots. Thanks for joining us this week. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all those other players. Don't forget to follow us on social media. I'm Dylan Honkoop, again, uh, your host here on Real Food, Real People. Grew up on a, a farm in Western Washington, and now I'm journeying all over the state to places like Camus's operation to get to know what really drives the people who are producing our food here in Washington and how they're really taking care of the things that we hold so dear, the, the environment, how they're taking care of people, how they're taking care of animals. So sit back, enjoy this first part of our conversation. Really cool stuff here from Camus. You come from a family of farmers, or what, what's your no background? Um, in this? I I don't. I I'm first generation, so I started our operation. Hmm. Um, my wife and I bought it in 2007, and just and my father-in-law helped us buy it, and that's how we got the ball rolling on what it is we're doing now. So, what makes? How old were you when you started this? I was 27. What is a 27 year old guy? who hasn't been in farming due to so start i i had worked uh i i had an interest in it and i had went to college and had an egg background in it um then when i got out of school i worked for a ranch for a while um always mainly in livestock and then uh did that worked for a feedlot went back to college got a better degree uh, worked for a bigger feedlot and then this place came up for sale and i went for it so where'd you go to college? Same place both times? No, I went to Walla Walla Community College and uh, Montana State is where okay. I graduated from. So what 
when you went to college the first time, what what was your plan? Uh, I, to be completely honest, I really didn't have one. I mean, it, I knew I wanted to get a degree. Um, you know, I come from the age of kids where they just pound that. Everyone has to go into college. Yeah, um, yeah same here. Uh, trades are super important, um, even more so now than they were when I went to school. But uh, at that, that was the time. That's what you did when you got out of high school. So I did mm-hmm. it. And I had a great job in high school. I was working as a diesel mechanic and had all the options to go just continue to work and go to school for that. But I didn't want to lay on my back on a concrete floor until I was 60. So, Well, and plus, I think they all told us at that time, well, if you're really going to get a good job, yeah. then you got to go to college. And that, and that, and I, I would never discourage anybody from going, but that is not necessarily the case these days. The trades are, are super important and pay in a lot of circumstances better than any education that you would get. Well, I don't know about your experience, but I know I have plenty of high school classmates of mine that didn't go to college and got into the trades and right away they were making more money yep. than me and they're still making more and they don't <laughs> have and they don't have student loans exactly. and everything else yep so and they had the 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 comfort in some ways of knowing what they were doing right away yep. rather than uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to do I got to go find a job and work my way up and yep. you can pretty well start and within a few years be going so where did you grow up uh outside of Yakima Wiley City okay and, but not a farm family. What what'd your dad do? My what? dad was a college professor at Central, hmm. and uh, my mom, um, she was mainly in, in the education field. So both kind of sort of teachers. Yep. And did they want you to become a teacher too? No, it wasn't anything like that. I had a, my folks were divorced, and I had a stepdad that was real into, into cattle, and that's kind of how I got the interest. Um, hmm. And I just kind of liked it. It was like every day, it felt like a Saturday, you know, and it still does. So so what age were you starting to think about even just like being on a ranch or when did you first get the chance to go out and do that? Oh, it's probably, I mean, in all reality, it was, you know, I was probably 15, 16, somewhere right in there and uh, just really into it. I I like cattle and I, I like the work and it was interesting. So you lived in town, but got to go out no, to a farm? Or? We, no, we always lived out, you know, Nothing like it wasn't like I was just straight out of the out of town, but mm-hmm. no, we had some acreage and we always had horses and cattle and things like that growing up, but never on a on a scale of what we do now. Yeah. So there you were, young kid. Which on, I mean, I grew up on a berry farm, and and uh, both my parents had grown up on dairy farms, so I've been around animals a bit too. But I always thought the kind of ranch and cattle thing was cool. You know, yeah. when you're young, yeah. it sounds cool, right? Yeah. Was it what you thought it was when you were a kid? What what did you find out so, from there until? So I I mean I've pretty well done every gamut where you you know you take three horses and ride out and camp for a week and check cattle and you know that's really cool for the first week and then it's kind of man that'd be nice to be home and get a shower. So like I mean the real cowboy deal you've done. Oh that. yeah, no, we yeah it was and it was fun and and it was definitely one of those things when you're 20. I mean if you're <laughs> if you're into it, I would encourage anybody just go for it, man. But uh, the reality is those are those jobs are there. They're still there. The West is still alive and 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 doing cool stuff like that. But uh, so you did that here in Washington? No, that was in the Dakotas. In the Dakotas, yeah. I uh, went back there for a couple of years, and that was before all the oil field stuff when minimum wage was still four seventy five. And wow, yeah, it was pretty fun. Is that what you were getting doing the cowboy thing? No, I think I was. It was probably less than that because I was on salary. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can't win them all. But uh, no, I mean, it was cool. It was a great experience. I mean, you you know, that stuff's neat. And uh, 
it just, it kind of evolved. Matter of fact, when I got done with that job, I moved home and I was going to take like a couple weeks off. And I have an uncle um, that has a feedlot out here. And he asked if I could come help for high moisture corn harvest supposed to last two weeks. And I ended up working for him for two years. And uh, that's how I, that's how I really got the interest in the feedlot. It was, I was just blown away what you can do with an animal in a, in a fairly short period of time. And uh, so then I, but the day I started working there, that's the best I was ever going to be. So that's why I went back to school to think if maybe I could get a job at a bigger yard managing it or something like that. And I, I did that um, for, I ended up working for a bigger feedlot for a couple of years. I really enjoyed it. But then when the opportunity came up for me to do my own, I, I jumped, I went for it. Was that scary? Super, man. I mean, I've never signed on a line and had my name look so shaky. It was a, that's a lot of money. And, um, as young, no one really gave me, I guess, credibility. Um, I had a good name in the industry and that's part of the reason that we're where we're at now is because somebody gave me a shot and, uh, we've had that same customer almost since day one. Mm. And, and we, as, as they've grown, we've grown with them to what, to what it is now. So what were you thinking at that time? You, you decided like, well, well, I'm going to do this. So, I mean, the crazy thing is, is it's, I mean, if you got enough, uh, Guts. I mean, any, anybody could, you could build a feedlot and put a sign up front that says, I'm a feedlot. doesn't mean anybody's going to send you any cattle. And you know, we're a custom feedlot. So, you know, we don't necessarily own the cattle. We might own a percentage or something like that. But to be in the custom business, it's a, it's a pretty big leap of faith. I mean, it'd be one thing if I owned all my own cows and I put them into my own feedlot and had all that going, but I don't have that. Um, so we're, we're strictly custom. So your name means a lot. It's still like that. That was everything that we did was, like I said, uh, in 2007, and it was done on a handshake. And you, and so what is that, to buy the land, to buy the uh, no, machinery? No, that, that, that was to start taking in custom cattle for the, the customer that we had. I mean, like I said, you can have a feedlot, but it doesn't mean anybody's going to send you anything. And so, so, so did you have the land no, then or how? No, I had, I had bought it and I wasn't really sure how this was all going to work out. I still had a great le- relationship with the feedlot that I was working for and thinking, well, maybe I'll knock on that door. And, yeah. but the place that I bought was so dilapidated and run down that there wasn't a pen there that would hold an animal. So I had a mm-hmm. bunch of work to do. So I worked full time at the feedlot I was working at. And then in the afternoons I'd get off work and I'd come work on mine. And I did that for about a year. And it just got to be too much. And we finally, uh, we harvested our first wheat crop that year. And uh, that was, a, I think I sold soft white wheat for like almost 10 bucks a bushel. That was in 2008, I believe. And uh, that kind of gave us a boost to be able to go buy some more boards and posts and fix some more stuff. And then we fired it up and it's been running ever since. I don't know prices for wheat. Is that a good price? That's crazy. Yeah, I think that, that was the highest I think it's ever been since I've farmed. What's it at now? Do you know? Yeah, about, I think it's under, I think it's just right at five bucks or under like five bucks. Half of what yeah, you are. It was a good, I mean, and that, in all honesty, I mean, it, you know, farming cattle, I mean, I wouldn't say that it takes a lot of luck, but a guy needs a good break every once in a while for it to keep running. And that particular year was our first year and we got that boost. And it, I, I'm not going to say it set the stage for the entire process, but it was, it was damn sure a good boost mm-hmm. in, in that, that a guy needed. So did, I want to talk more eventually about your family and stuff. Did, did you have family at that time or was it just you starting this? Uh, I was engaged. You're engaged. Uh, my wife and I weren't even married yet and we were crazy enough to buy it together. And I don't know. Yeah. What was she saying at that time? I mean, was she uh, as she, sure she, as you? She's or? awesome. I married up so big. It's not even funny. Um, but uh, no, she was, she was very encouraging. I mean, she knew I could do the work. She knew that, uh, 
that it was a, a good opportunity. Uh, the cool part about it is, is she's, she's in the banking industry and I can't, I won't say names, but I can't mm-hmm. bank where she works because it's a conflict of interest. Right. But I'm really, I was really good at the work and she was really good at making, helping me make the right business decision. Right. And yeah. I really wish I wouldn't have got an animal science degree. I wish I would have got a banking or economics or some sort of business degree mm-hmm. as opposed to, because the stuff that we do every day out in the feedlot is stuff that you will learn on the job or a veterinarian or a nutritionist or somebody can help you with, but running your own business is you really need to be intimate with it and know that if I buy this piece of equipment, it's going to put me back a year or two or five, or how am I going to pay for this? And is that worth it? Yeah. I mean, is it the right decision to make? Because potentially, I mean, you might be the best cattle feeder on the earth, but if you don't make the right business decisions, it's going to sink you. So you made the right decision with that soft white wheat. That year, well, the yeah, yeah, but that went really well. That was a good move. And I contracted it all at the peak of the market and sold it, and it was just, it was awesome. I was like, man, I don't know why everybody doesn't do this. This is easy. And then, you know, <laughs> I, but I, I would, I'd, I mean, I did start at the right time. There was a, the, you know, egg was going to be good for, and it has been good for after that point for, you know, another six years or so. And then, and then it kind of peaked out and has, and has been on a kind of a steady decline. Um, but it gets you to the, you know, for through those first like six, seven years where you're paying off a lot of equipment, a lot of land debt, a lot of just debt period. And I, I feel pretty fortunate that we started when we did because to do mm-hmm. it on a day like today where the markets are down and everything, and it's just, it's a lot tougher land lands worth more now rents are higher. It'd be pretty tough. But you're saying still pretty, pretty darn scary to, oh, yeah. to, to yeah. get, yeah, to yeah. jump in both feet. Oh Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it was, uh, I mean, looking back at it now, I can't believe I did it. I don't, I don't know. And I don't know how I made it work, but we did. Well, it sounds like your first year was a lot of hours for sure. Oh man, it was crazy. And like I said, I got a good wife. She was, she was cool with it. And, uh, how many hours a day were you putting in when you were working basically another, another full job? Yeah. So I used to, I had, I used to have to call feed at that other feedlot. And so I would be there at, uh, we had to be there at four 30 and then I'd get off about three 30 or four. And then I'd come to my yard and work on it until probably eight o'clock at night and go home. And do the math on that. Yeah, That's was, a couple of hours right there. It was tough, but I mean, and that was every day. Yeah. So that at that yard, we worked uh, a six and two schedule. So six days on, two days off. And then I mm. obviously, you, if it's just me, there's no days off here. So, right. Um, yeah. I did that for about a year and a half. Um, matter of fact, I think, um, it was three years before I ever even hired an employee to help me. And, uh, that was, I mean, I needed a break. I mean, it was pretty tough, but like I said, my wife was on board and we went for it. Explain what it is you actually do. I mean, you've been, you've been talking, you, you have C&G cattle company, right. you run a feedlot to a lot of people. That's a dirty word. Right. What does it really mean? So my operation is, uh, what in the industry, what we call a backgrounding yard or, um, um, it, basically what we do is we bring in light cattle that would, would have just been weaned off a cow. Um, and we bring them in at 550, 600 pounds, and then we'll take those to 900 pounds. And then after that, those will go to a finish feedlot where mm. they, where they put a finish on the animal. And then those cattle are typically harvested at this time, you know, 1450, you know, 1,450 pounds. So they'll put, they'll, they'll take them for quite a while, quite a while longer after I have them. But what we do is we, we get the health straight on them. We have a a really good solid vaccine program that we use on them, a good feed program. 
and we basically get them healthy, get them eating, get them straightened out. And then when the, when the finished feedlot takes them, it's, they just, it's pretty push button for them. It's real easy. So what do you mean straighten out? What is that? So we, my specialty, and I guess why I exist in the world is we're, we're pretty good at high risk cattle, meaning that those are cattle that came from a ranch that they take them to a sale yard. Um, our buyers put them together into, into usually truckload sizes. And we buy all from Canada, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, California, and they'll be brought in, um, into my place. And so from there, we don't really necessarily know any vaccine history on them. We don't know if they've ever even had a vaccine. We know kind of where they came from because most of them are branded. But beyond that, we know we know very little. So high risk, what's the risk? The risk is to you? No, the risk is to a customer. Um, we try to mitigate that risk as much as we can with the kind of the protocols and programs that we've put in place over the years. Um, it's crazy how much it changes. I wouldn't say so much year to year, but from when I first started doing this to now, um, we've fed enough cattle that we have a pretty solid program put together. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely, I would say less, less on, I wouldn't say it, I shouldn't say less on the technical side, but it's, uh, it's a little bit more, um, it's a slow, we, we just, it's a slower process. We did, we go real easy with them. Um, a lot of high roughage diets. We're not mm. trying to push them. We're, we're not shooting for a really high average daily gain. Um, basically, we want to get them eating, um, make sure they're healthy, lots of access to fresh water. We have a really um, intense and very technical mineral package that we put together because a lot of cattle that come from different areas of Washington or Oregon or Idaho, um, certain areas of those states, the grass is deficient in minerals and it can affect their immune system. Mm. So over the years, that's one thing that we've really developed. It's all chelated vitamins and minerals. It's readily available. It's in every very load of feed that we produce. And uh, we'll get those cattle caught back up on nutrition-wise what they need. And then they just, they stay healthy and put on pounds. So again, these are, these are cattle that have been out on the range somewhere? Yep. Yeah, these would be, these would be cal- uh, calves that would come off of a cow that were grazing. You know, it could be in the high desert of Oregon. It could be in the plains of B.C., or, you know, it could have been, um, we typically, we don't get a lot of coast cattle, um, but if we buy out of central Oregon, sometimes those will get coast cattle off of, uh, uh, like Coos Bay, those mm-hmm. areas. And so when you talk about high risk and risk to the customer, the customer would be whatever operation is going to buy them to finish them and harvest them. No, the risk would be basically the day they buy them from the sale yard. So mm-hmm. they're going to own them all the way through. We're, we're going to feed them and take care of them for them. Okay. Um, and, and under that feed and care is, is our program that we basically get them straightened out and healthy mm-hmm. and, 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 and looking like good cattle. So back to what I said, you know, some people feel like feedlot's a dirty word. What's your response to that? So, and I, I'm, you know, I, I love what I do. Uh, we, we don't have the, the prettiest aspect of the, like the, the livestock world. I mean, a ranch has green grass, rolling hills, pine trees, and everything else. We've got metal corrals and, mm-hmm. and concrete feed bunks. So it's not the prettiest thing, but the thing that blows my mind every year is when at the end of the year, when I get done and I sit down and I look at how many cattle we put through there, the pounds of beef that we put on animals and all that, it's typically, if you use the average of what a consumer eats every year, my facility feeds about 65,000 people a year. 65,000 people worth of beef. Yeah. So that's my response. I mean, I don't know. I don't really know how else to say that. In my opinion, there's no more, there's nothing more noble than feeding somebody. I mean, if I met some guy on the, 
on the side of the road and I, you know, he's hungry or whatever. And I brought him home and fed him. You know, I did him a bigger solid than giving him five bucks. You know, I mean, that's going to last a little longer than five. So for me to be able to say that I feed 65,000 people, and it's something that I, it's so important to us that, you know, every employee that we have knows it because the, and the cool part about a feedlot is we literally use the most modern technology that anybody has in the egg industry but we also use, still use the old school stuff where somebody's saddling a horse. Mm. And there's very few industries that you can say that. I mean, row crop farming, it's you climb in a tractor and you've got the most modern tillage equipment and all that. And I farm and we have that. Mm-hmm. But when it gets down to the feedlot, there's, it's, a, it's a different mentality. Um, it is long hours. It's, it's dirty, dusty, stinky work. But food is a dirty, dusty, stinky job. And it, uh, I'm happy to be part of it. So you do think about it in terms of the food that you produce for people. I mean, your team with the things that you're doing on a day-to-day basis, that's in the back of your mind. Absolutely. And and it's also one of those industries when people say, you know, every job here is important. Well, and I agree with that in most industries, but I would say at my feedlot, that rings more true than anywhere. Mm. Because, I mean, we wash the water tanks regularly and that's kind of a typically in the, you know, when you hire a guy, that's where he starts. If he wants to move up through the chain of command and, you know, eventually be a pen rider or a feed truck driver or some of those jobs or a processor or any of those, I mean, that's where you start. But that job is very important. It, I mean, if you don't wash the tanks, you can, there's a potential that you could have sick cattle or, you know, something like mm-hmm. that. So it is, it is pretty cool that it, it is a neat, a neat industry, a neat trade that literally every job is, every job there that gets done every day on a daily basis is important. Oh. And you're feeding people. <laughs> Whether or not they want to eat it or not, that's but that's the beauty of America. They can choose to buy beef or they can choose to buy other protein products. But the people that choose to buy it, I'm feeding them. And I'm cool with that. And I'll keep doing it. I think more and more people, as much controversy as there there is about it, as far as some people go with different takes on beef, I think there is also an awareness that people are coming around to that it's an important protein source it is and not all protein is created equal no no it's not um whether or not you choose to buy it the it you know that's that's the beauty of where we live i mean there's more options out there than you can ever imagine even especially like what i was telling you earlier in the in the in the beef sector i mean there's there's conventional there's organic there's free or grass-fed there's natural there's all these different segments and i don't really care what you eat as long as you're eating beef Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm team beef. I mean, you never take your wife out to a chicken dinner. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll remember that. There's a reason they make a steak knife, not a chicken knife. <laughs> so chicken. I'm just, I, I'm just joking, but it, it's, uh, it, it's not like, a, I mean, to go back to where your initial question, it, it, they're not beautiful. They're not, but they're designed to be extremely efficient. They're designed to feed lots. Yeah. Not waste. I mean, I can tell you exactly how much my corn silage pit is going to shrink in the next 12 months. I mean, we're down to the pounds. I mean, and extremely efficient. We're in the business of the margin is literally penny sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I make a decision to change a feed additive that would maybe help in the immune system, typically the salesman is going to tell me it's in cents per head per day. Mm-hmm. And that might not sound like a lot, right? On one head, you're like, well, it's going to cost me two cents more per head per day. But when you spread that over 4,000 head all, and you're going to do it over the next 90 days, well, that's a chunk of change. You say feed additive. I'm sure some people might say, oh, you know, what kind of chemicals no, are you giving these no, no, animals? No, no, it's, it's nothing like that. And, and uh, any feed additive that we do feed would have a zero-day withdrawal because it's in the feed. 
Um, antibiotics, if we do doctor an animal, it has a withdrawal. Those are set uh, by the FDA. We have to follow them. Um, no animals with any residue are ever shipped. Can't do it. It's illegal. So All- no, you're saying any beef can't have antibiotics in it. Yeah, and I'll even help out the other industries, any meat product that you would see in a supermarket cannot have any antibiotic residue in it. It is illegal and it won't have it in it. That's so, why we have the safety the safety checks. That's why America's awesome. Other countries, I don't believe they have. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't speak to those countries, but I know for a fact I've toured the processing plants. I've seen the steps and measures that they go to it, and I am 100% proud to say I'm a part of that industry. So why is it that some things you see in the grocery store might say antibiotic-free and others don't then? Because it all has to be antibiotic free, and it's a marketing. Uh, I shouldn't mm. say scheme or something like that, but it, it's just it's purely marketing. Mm. And I would encourage if someone does have a question, you know, I wouldn't jump on Google and I wouldn't jump on Facebook and I wouldn't jump on Instagram and all those other deals where everyone gets their news now. But I would call a farmer. I mean, you know, we're in the phone book. So this whole like you know, meat, this meat, you know, is antibiotic free. It's kind of a farce because it's all supposed it's, to be. Otherwise, it's Illegal. illegal. It's all antibiotic <laughs> free. And it's a marketing ploy. I mean, and it's and but it's tugging at the heartstrings of consumers. And and I don't think that's fair. And it and that isn't you're not gonna get that from a guy like me. You're gonna get that from the bigger companies that are trying to sell that product. Back to the feedlot issue. I think one of the things that people worry about or fear and the, the image that they have in their mind is that uh, animals are not being treated well in a feedlot. Right. You're talking about getting animals healthy in your feedlot. Where's the, where's the breakdown there? Why why is it that people think feedlots are bad for animals? You're saying you're actually getting them healthy in your feedlot, right? So, no, that um, we we on a daily basis. I mean, I guess I can break a day down for you real quick, just to sure. make it real like crystal clear for yeah. everybody. So. Yeah. We check their feed every morning. My guy that does it uh, starts at 5.30. He drives through, checks every feed bunk, every pen gets checked. Um, at the time when he's typically doing that, he'll check the water tanks to make sure they're full or not overflowing or there's something, some issue there. Then um, once the feeding and water and everything's checked, every pen is checked, so every animal gets looked at. Um, we have developed facilities and updated everything to the point that there isn't even a hot shot on my farm. We don't own one. We don't need one. It's hot shot. What's that? All the electric um, prods that to, oh, that, okay. that everybody yeah. thinks get that an animal moving. Yeah. yeah, and we don't even we don't use them. We don't have them. Mm. There's no need. We've we've updated. We've designed. We've become. Um, you know, every guy I have is beef quality assurance certified. And part of that training program is moving cattle, um, loading cattle, unloading cattle, processing cattle. We're, we're big on it. We, and the, the cool part is, is it's so relaxing when we are doing those things and moving cattle that it, it isn't even hard. I mean, this isn't, you know, whip and spur, scream and yell. This isn't working cows with your grandpa. I mean, we do this every day. We're good at it. We care about them. And I'm literally, I make my living from taking care of them. That's the whole reason I have a job. So why would you be hurting them, I guess, There's is the question. There's no damn reason in the world to ever treat an animal ill. There's, it's, it, I, and if, you know, we, we have a saying, and it hangs above my shop door that says, treat them like they're yours, because we truly are in a custom business where there aren't our animals, mm. you know, and, but we do, you know, and the guys that work for me, most of them have been with me a long time, and we have a, you know, we hold ourselves to a very high standard. And I think we have to, and I think that's also part of the reason that we've grown how we have, and we've been able to 
maintain an existing customer for as long as we have um, and also grow to be, you know, basically the largest grow yard in the Northwest. And I'm proud to say that, but we treat every one of them as if we own them. And I'm not going to try to scare people off and throw dollars and cents and, oh, I have this huge investment in them. But I, to, to boil it down for you, when my feedlot's full, it's $4 million in cattle inventory, mm. just cattle. That's not feed. That's not anything else. And I'm a smaller, and I'm, a, you know, a 4,000 feedlot. These big guys, you know, the bigger feedlots have even more, you know. So to say that I would ever treat one of them poorly or deny them water or fresh feed or any of that thing is just, it's asinine. You just, you're not gonna, you're not gonna do it. You, you can't. And there's, and, and like I said, the reason we've been able to excel and expand and become who we are is because we care for them so well. What you're saying resonates with what I I hear from a lot of farmers and what I know practically to be true, which is if you want to do well, if you want a, an animal to produce well, why would you want to abuse them or hurt them? It doesn't make any sense. It would right. be and and but yet there still is this perception that the way that uh, farms are now is just an industrial industrial farming or a, a factory farm and they're just pushing animals through and they're abusing them and i'm just kind of going off of what i'm assuming the the right. mindset is here that they're abusing them to save money and get more out of them somehow which no like you're saying that's backwards it is and it, very much so and, and it's to the point where we also have a saying that it's uh Quality feed, quality animal, mm. and we've I grow the oh yeah I, I I I grow the majority of the feed for my feedlot on my own farm ground. Um, I've got a neighbor that grows a lot for me, but the other beauty of feedlots is we take products that aren't typically they would typically in another industry be waste. So one ingredient that I don't I don't personally feed, but a lot of them would do in the area that we're at is uh, French fries. Mm. And they're coal French fries because it has a black spot on it and McDonald's won't sell it. <laughs> and if you did get it in your French fries, you might take it back and say, hey, this one's burnt. But it's, but it's perfectly good cattle feed. So for us to be able to use the byproducts that come from other industries, like we feed a lot of bluegrass straw. Well, bluegrass straw comes from the grass seed industry that planted your front lawn or a golf course uh, or you know, lawns around hotels and all these places that have green grass. It comes from somewhere and, it, and we feed a byproduct out of it. Same thing every time you fill up your car with uh, gasoline, E85, the other 15% is uh, ethanol. And we feed a lot of ethanol byproduct. It's called wet distiller's grains. Mm. And so after they extract the part that they're going to put in gasoline, we feed what's left over. And it's awesome feed. What would happen to it otherwise? I couldn't even tell you. I mean, they basically, with the intent when uh, our government decided that they needed to up the ethanol in it, production went up and... um, People, I mean, you can you can buy it dried, you can buy it in a pellet, you can buy it wet, you can buy it different ways. So it is but really, it's, it but it's all going to end up in animal feed. But other than animal feed, it pretty much wouldn't be good for anything. You dump it, but mm. it's good animal feed. It's great animal feed. It's not. Even, it's not just good. It's great. Um, and so we, you know, the potato industry is huge in our area. So there's a lot of feedlots that feed uh, potato byproducts. Um, there's stuff what they call hopper waste. There's slurry. There's various parts of the process that get it that prepare that potato for human food that ends up in a byproduct that feedlots utilize and uh so it's the other i mean that's another cool part of the industry is that you know i guess i think they i think they call them upcyclers so you know what it's it or i guess if you i always say it's trash to cash 
Mm. So, you know, we, we buy those products, um, we store them here on the on site and then we, and we feed it. So these animals are basically taking, like you talk about this distiller's waste and they're turning that, which would otherwise be unusable right. and certainly is not edible. Right. They're turning that into high quality protein for humans for human, to yep. consume. Yep. Yep. So what do you think then about all this? Uh, we got to get rid of beef. Uh, because it's using up land and water and all these things and and causing climate change. So I I mean I uh, I I mean I read through those, but the the cool part about my feedlot and I can't I'm going to speak about mine. We we reuse everything. So the manure that comes out of my pens goes back on my farm ground, um, and it's not raw manure. We typically age it, compost it, and screen it. And then it goes back on as, uh, you know, when I, I remember my grandma always used to buy bag steer manure. Well, I make it by the truckload. <laughs> um, and we spread that back on our farms at agronomic rates. Um, and the cool part is, is when I started doing that, my fertilizer bill went down close to $30,000 a circle. And that comes out of my yard, my feedlot. So that's we, heading towards organic right there. I'm the, I'm pretty much the greenest <laughs> hippie you've ever met. Uh, but the, the, you know, when people say things like that, it it kind of, it really bugs me because we work so hard at making sure that we don't waste anything. Um, my guys get tired of me telling me, hey, quit spilling feed, make sure you shovel that, you know, clean that up, scrape that into a pile. Uh, that, the the part... Maybe that's just because you're cheap though. No, it's efficient. <laughs> I'm efficient. I just had to give so, you a hard time. So, that, you know, and there's this, all this other stuff, you know, when people say that, I kind of look at them and I want to ask them, well, what is it that you do to change it? You drove here, you use plastic, you've got garbage in your garbage can. Mm. You know, what are you doing? Well, by the way, I farm a couple hundred acres that sequesters carbon. So sometimes when I read that, I just want to say, you know what? You're welcome. I'm glad I could help you out. So you're not concerned about cows causing climate change? Not at all. No. Nope. I'm more worried about all the people that drive that probably should just walk. Mm. Or, I mean, if I, I think that these, that the noise about those things that are coming to people that, like me, that are trying to feed people, I think that maybe those masses should do a little something to change. And I, I mean, I think that they do, but I don't think they do it on the scale that I do. Mm. So I, I mean, I uh, have a hard time buying it. What about, I mean, obviously we're talking about the environment here. What else do you do for the environment? You talked about manure. Um, people have environmental concerns about manure and how it's handled. You right. mentioned you put it on your fields. You mentioned agronomic rate. What does that mean? So we put on in, and typically we will fall apply or spring apply manure. And um, in the area that we're in, it's extremely dry. Our average rainfall is six inches a year. Mm. So we don't typically worry about the leaching into groundwater or anything like that. We're also 600 feet to groundwater. So it's a, it's a ways down there. Um, but it, it, the agronomic rate, so if we, I pull, we pull soil samples every spring, every fall, we, so we know where we're at with what the crop would use and what it's going to need. And we don't over apply. Um, so you don't apply beyond what the crop is going to use. No. And we, you know, it's kind of, it's really cool. I mean, like I said, it's a cool industry. We have that, we got the most modern, I mean, the tractors that pull the wagons get GPS, the wagons have scales. I know how many pounds are going on every acre. And the part of the reason is, is you want to talk about trash to cash. This has become a valuable product because it's not just the nitrogen, the N, P, and K that's in it. 
-hmm. It's also all the micronutrients. It's a living, you know, product that when you apply it to soil, plants, it's readily available. There is no process that it has to go through. So it's good for ground. And it's to the point now that it's a saleable product. So when people think that, you know, we're out here just over applying it, it, there's really no monetary reason to do that. Because if you can utilize what it is that you need on, like if for my, you know, my farm, I utilize what I need on mine. And then if I have leftover, I'll sell it. Mm. But if I don't, I'll use it. So there is no reason for me to just throw money out the back of my manure spreader just because I have to get rid of it. So it's yeah. not a waste. No, no. It's a waste product in the feedlot. But once it hits farm ground, it's as good as gold. So you're big into soil health stuff then too? Absolutely. Have to be. What's the key to good soil health? A good crop rotation. Um, in our area, our soils are mostly, um, uh, you know, what they call them aridosol. So it's a, it's a highly, we're in an arid area. Mm-hmm. Um, so our soils are typically, inherently they're low in organic matter. So anytime that we can put that back in, it helps with uh, the water holding um, water penetration, um, just overall soil health. So if we decide to do high moisture corn for harvest, all those corn stalks will go back into the soil. Um, if we choose to do silage, we'll take the silage off, but we're going to put compost back on. Um, so, you know, over the years that I've owned this farm every year, it continues to yield higher. Mm -hmm. And that's the goal. Uh, There is no reason to just farm it to farm it. I mean, it's a long-term project and it's a long-term investment. It's not cheap to spread manure. It's not cheap to just apply it. It's, it's a, I mean, you're talking, there's a guy in a tractor, a guy in a loader, you're talking burning diesel. There's all those things. But when it's all said and done, when you talk about, you know, the greenhouse gas and all that other stuff, I mean, those crops that we're growing are going to sequester carbon. So I think that my footprint is probably smaller than most people's. I truly believe that. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. Next week, in the second half of our conversation with Camus Ubelacher, we find out more about his family and what he sees as the future of farming and the issues around producing food here in Washington State. He has more answers coming up next week that you probably wouldn't expect to hear from a guy who's running a feedlot. It's, it's really cool and encouraging to hear people across the board breaking stereotypes of the things that they care about, the things that are important to them, and what really drives their operations. So a big thank you again to Camus for opening up uh, with us and sharing some of this. And I'm really excited to next week share the second half of our conversation again with Camus Ubelacher of CNG Cattle Company in Othello, Washington. Uh, As I'm always reminding you, make sure to follow us on social media, Real Food, Real People podcast on Facebook, uh, on Instagram as well. I think the handle is, what is it? At RFRP underscore podcast. That's the handle on Instagram as well as on Twitter. So we'd love it. We'd really appreciate it if you followed us there, shared our content. We're just trying to get these stories to more people in Washington so they can start to hear from the real farmers that are producing our food here. Rather than having to hear from anyone else, why not straight from the horse's mouth, as, as the saying goes? Uh, we really appreciate you supporting the podcast in, in that way. And, of course, always... Uh, 
welcome feedback on any of those social media platforms as well as dylan at realfoodrealpeople.org. That's my email address. Feel free to shoot me an email anytime you want. If you've got a thought on the show, maybe you didn't like something that someone said or you have a different perspective. Maybe you know somebody with a different perspective on an issue that I should have on the program. We want to hear from all perspectives here on Real Food, Real People, and we really appreciate you following us and listening along. We'll catch you next week for the second half with Camus Ubalocker. Oh, and I should also thank our sponsors. Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families. You can find them online at savefamilyfarming.org and by Dairy Farmers of Washington, supporting Washington dairy farmers, connecting consumers to agriculture and inspiring the desire for local dairy. Find out more at wadairy.org.